Anyway, welcome to Critical Q&A, uh, number 425, and we're doing this live today on Sunday, uh, September 10th, in the year of our Lord, 2023. <laughs> All right, good, there we go. Yeah, Xenus definitely loves uh, messing with the sound cables. Now, uh, yes, I got a haircut. Yes, I did. Um, okay, now, let me uh, possibly introduce us to a new feature. I want to sh show you guys a couple things in the chat box, the live chat box. There is a ad reaction um, face in the bottom left corner. If you want to click on emojis and if you're members and you have access to the special emojis, that's how you get to them. There is a dollar bill sign or a bill sign next to that, which is for super chatting. If you want to super chat, please do. And that's the button to use for that. And today we're going to explore this other button. This, uh, start a Q&A. Please leave your questions here. And I am now posting a, that as a pinned comment at the top of the comment stream there. And you guys can go in there and put your questions in. And I should be able to see them as they pop up there. And this should make it so that I don't have to go up and down the comment stream throughout the show in order to do, in order to get your questions is I've just uh, put this up there. And so if you, I believe now, if you, uh, yep, there we go. Uh, do you know why the telex designation for flag was MR? Um, now. That does not, okay, let's go ahead and go over to the comments thing there. Good, so you can still see the comments on the stream there. Um, but I will see um, the questions here on my chat box that shows me those questions. And um, I will select that question. And there it shows up on that chat for me. Okay, now let me grab my mouse again because I had to go over and use this for over there. But now let me see if this will throw that up on the screen. There. Perfect. So now I can get the questions out of a box here without having to go up and down the comments and take all that time doing that and I can post them up on the screen as I highlight them and answer them. Okay, a little bit of time taken on that. I wanted to see how this thing works. This is the first time I'm trying it, uh, but I thought in the long run it might save us an awful lot of time. YouTube created this uh, feature about a year ago and I just found out about it. Um, excuse me. And so um, I, I'm very happy to learn this. And so we can make this a lot smoother of a Q&A if you go up to that top part there and put your questions there. And otherwise, comment away in the comment stream, and you'll see it in the chat box there on the uh, right. So um, I'm literally like wheels turning right now trying to figure out how that would be the italics abbreviation for flag. I have no idea. I, I, maybe I knew at one time and I've just totally forgotten this, but I, I, I don't know. And actually, I don't even know um, 
exactly the context of this because I don't recall seeing Telex's that way. So I'm I'm actually like I'm I'm not only not remembering the answer, I'm not even remembering this happening. So maybe this was before my time, because um, we always called flag flag. So I don't I don't know um, the answer to this question, and that's the best I can say to that. Sorry about that. Um, okay. Liz D, for us WOGs, can you expand a bit about the difference between missions and orbs? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, in the Scientology world, in the Scientology hierarchy of organizations that deliver or have anything to do with Scientology, um, oh, it was between 77 and 81. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not familiar. I don't know why uh, it would have been called MR. Um, in terms of missions and orgs, okay, so so L. Ron Hubbard had the idea in the 1950s, 60s to build franchises, to build a franchise system, to build Scientology the same way McDonald's was built, basically. And from a business plan, that's sound thinking. I mean, that's that for religion, that sounds bizarre, and it is. Uh, but Scientology is not really a religion in that sense. Scientology is a business enterprise. Uh, you know, they have price lists, for Christ's sake. So it's, you know, it's, it's hardly your traditional religion. And it's not operated in a religious model. It's operated in a business model with profits and money and income and fixed donations, quote unquote. In other words, price lists, sales prices for things. Um, selling all of their materials, and they have gads and gads and gads of them and all of that, right? We all, we all get this. So Hubbard set up this franchise system, and then they turned it over to calling them missions. Originally, they were called franchises. And those franchises were individual Scientologists were uh, paid for the uh, privilege or for the right to deliver uh, use the trademarks of Dianetics and Scientology to sell and deliver Scientology services to new people. The idea being that these would be introductory services or more tailored toward beginning lower level services of Scientology to get people involved and interested and get them in and do it at the grassroots street level. Go out, sell books, go out there to flea markets, go out to swap meets, go out to conventions and shows. Uh, do it, you know, in front of, get a building in front of a, a, a populated place where there's a lot of body traffic, a lot of people moving around. Rent a, you know, a fairly cheap uh, front line place where you'll where you'll be able to access people and hang out a shingle and sell Dianetics and Scientology books and introductory services and lower level classes and they gave franchises Hubbard gave them the uh, right to sell auditing services up to the level of clear that's as far as you can go in a mission you'll never go further than that or go up to the ot levels or something like that now the main difference between these lower level mission groups and the organizations the class five orgs um, the orgs system has a has a classification designation based on the services that the orgs deliver so a class five org delivers up to class five auditor training and 
basically class five or level five auditing, which is new era Dianetics. So uh, that's why they're called class five orgs. And these are your city level churches, uh, the, the one here in Denver, the one in Los Angeles, the one in New York, the one in Milano, uh, Birmingham, Manchester, Adelaide, right? All of these are class five city level churches. They are responsible for uh, you know, a wide zone outside of just the city that they're in, but those are basically how they're classified. And class five orgs can deliver not only only auditing up to the level of clear, but they can also deliver auditor training services, and this is what missions cannot do. Missions can only train uh, Dianetic auditors, book one auditors, low level, right? You take the Dianetics book and you work with somebody else, that's a Dianetics auditor, and missions can do that, but that's all they can do as far as auditor training goes. They're not heavy focus on training, they're heavy focus on auditing and on turning people over to the orgs. Didn't really work out that way in the long run, though. The missions became their own entities and operated for their own good and delivered a lot of auditing services because that's where the big money is in Scientology. And so the very thriving and successful missions of the 70s and 80s were built on selling and delivering lots and lots of auditing services, which they could charge as much as the orgs charge. Um, and they could... Um, and they got a lot of people in and, and got Scientology going. And then they also concentrated on the communications class and other lower-level services, but mainly the comm course is what it was called, um, was, the, was the way that they were getting a flood of people in. They'd get them in through that, snap them out of their body with an out-of-body experience. Oh, my God, I can see the room around me doing this communications drill. It's amazing. Oh, yeah, well, we got a lot more. Check out the auditing side, right? Give us a few thousand dollars. We'll, we'll blow your mind. And that's how missions boomed in, the, in that time period before Hubbard cut them off at the knees out of really just pure spite and jealousy and paranoia and destroyed everything that he had, uh, th this entire system he had created in order to expand Scientology. It was actually working. The system Hubbard created was, was, was being run by people who had business savvy and it was working. And he's the one who chopped it all up into little tiny bits uh, with David Miscavige's help. That was, that was David Miscavige's real coming to uh, age moment is taking down the entire mission network. And he, I'm sure to this day, still feels a great deal of pride over having done that, even though what he and Hubbard both did was execute Scientology's own demise. They, they sped it up in ways that no one else external to Scientology could have. Uh, so that was pretty awesome. Um, okay, so um, let's keep going. Hope that uh, hope that answer satisfies Liz. Um, all right, what do we got here? Oh, um, atypical Paul. I think you're talking about the Q and A box, and that's a YouTube thing. That's uh, that's something they built in, and I'm finally taking advantage of it. Um. Yes. Okay. Joe DiCepo, great question. On your stream with Mitch, you were talking about negative self-image, and I mentioned to you about how that really struck me with my experience. How have you navigated that in your onion? This is, this is a really good question because one of the most powerful ways 
that you can be manipulated and made to feel less than and inferior and awful about yourself is for you to do that to yourself through negative self-imaging, through talking to yourself or thinking to yourself how horrible, awful, evil, dumb, ignorant, stupid, everything else, fill in the blank, you are. There is no one, no one in your life you will ever run into who is going to have more power over your self-image than you. No one. And we learn through experience the wrong lessons in, in ego and in self-image. If you let anyone else, I'm willing to, to, to bet right now, talking to almost all of you out there, that if you were to imagine another person in your life who talked to you the way you talk to yourself about yourself, that you would think that that person was a psycho manipulator, narcissist enemy of yours, and you would want them out of your life as quickly as possible. It's that what we do to ourselves and how we talk to ourselves can be that bad. Right? We can harp and harp and harp on ourselves about this. And there is power in that because of the repetition of the messaging. When you hear the same thing over and over and over again, you start believing it. Your brain is tuned to do that. It's repetition of message. It's a standard. It's, it's propaganda 101. It's advertising 101. Right? Hit them with the message. Hit them with it again and again and again and again. Don't ever let up, right? Just keep hitting them with the message and eventually it will get through. This is why Scientology won't ever give up your address and contact information and keeps writing letters and emails and phone calls and house visits. Repetition of message. It it works. It's what makes, it's, it's, it's brain food, right? The brain just eats it up. So when you are telling yourself many times throughout the day on a daily basis how stupid and ignorant and dumb and evil and and bad you are, you are your own worst enemy. This isn't just like motivational speaking I'm doing right now. This is a psychological fact. So it is in your best interest to not do that to yourself, to literally excise that voice from your mind. And that voice, I believe, is sort of an accumulation of all the voices you've heard in the past telling you these things, played on automatic loop, just like when you get a song stuck in your head. Your brain's not always your best friend when it comes to trying to predict where your things are going, and it bases an awful lot of how what it's feeding you on your past experience. That's all it has to go on. So, so this, is, this, this becomes a very, you know, a kind of a dwindling spiral trap. And this has only become like this clear to me. I'm speaking so forcefully about this, right? This has only become so clear to me, you know, fairly recently. Um, I caught myself and I've caught and other people caught me out with this and pointed it out. And it was like a revelation. It was like, oh, right. Another onion layer, right? Another like how to deal with this. And you really have to. This is I talk about the discipline of critical thinking. 
how you have to tune your mind and train and drill and practice and exercise critical thinking because your brain doesn't do it automatically or organically. It's not built to do it. It's not built to question everything and not accept things and point out the logical fallacies and, and, and logic holes in things. Your, your brain's not necessarily tuned to that sort of thing. So you have to fight it, uh, especially when you've got years of negative self-imaging to, working against you, right? Because it becomes, it becomes a habit to, to, talk your, to talk down to yourself and, and not be your best friend, your own best friend. And yet, here's the thing. It doesn't cost you anything to change this. It is only beneficial, now, obviously, we don't want to go too far in the other direction of pure narcissism and, you know, look at ourselves in the mirror all day and talk about how great we are to ourselves. But I'll tell you what, it would do more good for more people to act that way about themselves than, do, than what they are doing right now, right? The narcissist obviously takes it too far. But a little positive self-imaging and being your own best friend is literally the best thing and the simplest thing you can do for yourself. It just, I mean, it's, 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 you know, and if you think, well, I can't do that, that's negative self-imaging right there. <laughs> you see, you stop yourself before you even give yourself a chance to start. And I don't care how many times you failed in the past. I don't care how often you've made this a habit for yourself. And I don't even care how much you actually believe it at this point, because it's not true, right? I mean, if you're watching my channel, you are not an evil person, right? Evil people don't come here. Uh, and so, you know, so give yourself a break. Um, and it sounds easy and it's not, I, I, I'm using language that sounds like, Oh, just stop, just stop, you know, knock it off. Right. Uh, stop or I'll put you in a box. Right. That whole thing. Uh, I know it's not easy. This is one of the hardest things in the world to do is to change your own negative self imaging inside your own head, but you have to start somewhere and you got to start someday and you, you know, sometime you have to start. And the way you start is you just practice and practice. And maybe you put post-it notes around your house. Maybe you put magnets on your fridge. Maybe you set yourself daily reminders. You know, you don't have to get Stuart Smalley about this and be all like affirmational. You just have to stop insulting yourself all the time. And when you do find yourself thinking those thoughts, you got to, stop it. Don't do that, right? Don't do that. I'm literally talking to myself here, right? Don't do that to yourself. Um, so this is how I've dealt with it. Uh, maybe there are other methods or ways or tricks or techniques or something. I, you know, you could look that up and see whatever's going to work for you as far as um, how you might train yourself out of this. But don't think it's going to take a day or two. This is a long-term problem. It's going to be a long-term solution. Um, but it has to start somewhere, and it, and it really does start with the simplicity of telling yourself, hey, you know what, I'm actually okay. You know, I'm not an evil person. I'm not a horrible person. I have done maybe horrible things, maybe stupid things, maybe ignorant things. Does that have to define me today? Does it have to be who I am tomorrow? Maybe not. And maybe it starts with looking at yourself differently. Um, these are, again, this is all the thoughts I've had about this with myself, you know, thinking through and, and trying to figure out how to be a better person and better friend for me. So I hope that, um, 
I hope that helps uh, a little bit with all of that. Um, Cause it's, I think it's important. I think it's really important. Um, and for those of you out there who don't have this problem, kudos. A lot of us do. <laughs> I'm not projecting myself on the entire world here and saying everybody's got this problem. I, I know that's not true, but a lot of us have this problem and we could be better to ourselves. All right. Um, there we go. See what else we got here. This is great having all the questions right here. This really is helping me. I don't know about how the experience is for you guys, but um, but this is good. Now, while I'm seeing these questions, by the way, I am not necessarily seeing all of your comments on the comment stream. They are two different uh, two different things there. So, um, <laughs> okay, Alex apostate Alex might be the exception to everything I just said. <laughs> Yeah, big time. Big time, guys. Okay, good. Um, okay. Oh, they just tell them to. Oh, yeah. No, they just tell them to. Young Matador asks, I see Giovanni Ribisi also wrote a letter to Almedo. How does the Church of Scientology convince celebs to get involved in this letter writing campaign? They just tell them to. It's not a matter of having to convince them. And if they start showing, you know, if you're, call, if you're called into the celebrity office or if you're told to do something by the president of Celebrity Center International and you're a Scientologist, you know, it, there, there's a certain tone or a certain attitude they can take with you, which is going to be, yes, sir, no, sir, how high, sir. Even if you're a multi-million, you know, dollar-valued celebrity, uh, you're still a Scientologist and you are still beholden to Scientology for your eternity. And if you're a believer in that whole construct, then you know that Scientology basically has you by the balls. Yeah, it's kind of like that. And the whole BC Masterson clan and all of that, these guys are tight, tight, thick as thieves, as they say. And so I don't think it took a lot of arm wrangling or, or twisting in order to get those letters done, especially because they were probably even told, look, this is just for the judge. You know what I mean? Nobody's going to see this, right? I don't think Scientology expected these things to leak. And it certainly appeared from the uh, laundry list of Scientologists who were writing letters in favor of Masterson to the judge that Scientology absolutely could have been one of the things that put him up to it. Masterson, of course, would have wanted that. His lawyers would have wanted that. So, you know, it might not have been a church op as such. It could well have been that the lawyers said, look, man, you need some character references for the judge. It's only going to help. Why don't you ask your bros and friends for this assistance and uh and i and i say bros because that's how i think about ashton and danny's relationship if those guys are not bros before hoes i don't know who are right i mean ashton kuchar's you know real colors have come out a few times and i've been watching that guy for years and he is i don't think he's a good guy i just don't my my personal assessment my take on that guy is he's got skeletons right big ones and um that's a guess on my part, right? Uh, I don't think he's a Scientologist. Uh, I don't think Mila is a Scientologist because I think if he was, he'd be talking about it. Um, I think he would. I think there would have been some illusion of some kind to it, but um, but I think he loves Danny Masterson as a friend. I do. I think Ashton Kutcher just is. I just think he thinks Danny is the the bee's knees, and I think all of those people who wrote those letters, by the way, I I think personally that they are all a hundred percent positive that Masterson was railroaded. 
I think that's where they're coming from. And I think the reason, you know, the, I think the backlash and the, and the, you know, hostage video and all that was them going, ah, oh, geez, now we got to run through, you know, go around the circle again here, uh, do the apology tour. But I don't think they're really very apologetic because I think they, in their heart of hearts, they believe Danny Masterson is innocent. Or in the case of Ashton, uh, maybe he knows Masterson is not innocent, but it's bros before hoes, right? And uh, and I know that's you know a slightly offensive phrase to some people, but uh, that's the point <laughs> of it. Okay, so um, that I don't know. That's I you know I could be out to lunch on this whole thing. It the, the truth could be something completely different from everything I just said. Um, but in the, you know, in the world of all possible worlds, that's the one I think we're living in is, is what I just laid out there. So let's see what else we got here. Um, oh, here's a great question from Daphne's mom. When does Dianetics become Scientology? Um, You can get involved in Scientology without doing any Dianetics at all. Not touch it, not go anywhere near it until you're up to the point where you're going to start going clear and then you're going to get what's called new era Dianetics. And that's after a whole bunch of other Scientology has been done. The grades and objectives and the purification rundown, a bunch of stuff. Or Dianetics could have been your intro route your way in that was it's something scientology to this day still pushes because it's secular it's a modern science of mental health it's not a religion dianetics is not and so it has legitimacy in some people's eyes where scientology wouldn't if you're not you know this a religious philosophy kind of person um so Dianetics turned over, historically speaking, um, Dianetics is what started it all in 1950. And Hubbard stayed on the Dianetics track through 1950 and through 1951. And it was at the end of 1951 and the beginning of 1952 that the word Scientology came out. And this had a lot to do with Hubbard's uh, trademark uh, and service mark ownership of Dianetics because he lost it to a guy named Don Purcell in 1951. And he really didn't have the right to Dianetics anymore, believe it or not, for a few years. And so he started the Church of Scientology. And the Church of Scientology solved a number of problems that L. Ron Hubbard had. So that's how it happened, historically speaking. But in terms of doing services for Scientology, um, you know, it's kind of optional. It's kind of all over as to, um, as to uh, when you might switch over from Dianetics to Scientology. Because you could come in and do a bunch of book one Dianetic auditing. You could do a few hundred hours of it if you wanted to. Um, but it's not going to really get you anywhere on the Scientology bridge. And they're going to be encouraging you early on to get onto the bridge, which is their chart of services. They're ever-increasing, uh, ever-more-expensive, ever-more-indoctrinating level of services that you do step-by-step-by-step step step as you go up the, the Scientology bridge. So, um, so that's kind of how that works I, I i hope i'm i'm speaking plainly enough there um with all that but that's 
that's that's how it works. All right. Um, oh, you guys better throw some more questions in here. I'm down to the down to two now on my on my list. What is an ideal org? Chris Wood, how many staff should be manning the average ideal org? How much money do you think the average ideal brings in? Okay, great set of questions, Chris. Um, an ideal org is proposed to be a physical representation of Scientology that matches the wondrous miracle of Scientology. The idea was that our, the physical quarters and spaces of Scientology looked like shit. And they did. Runny, torn, dirty carpets, folding tables, folding chairs, old buildings. This is where Scientology lived for the most part. And all of their buildings short of the highest level ones, Flag and the Sea Org bases started getting renovated first in the 1980s and 90s. Just out of necessity, they were such shitholes, right? I mean, the, the Fort Harrison, when Scientology moved into it, and that whole, all of their properties out in Clearwater were absolute trash heaps. I mean, they were awful. Cockroaches and everything else as well. And Pack Base wasn't a whole lot better. I mean, damn! When they took over Pack Base in the or in the mid 1970s, uh, they bought the Cedars of Lebanon Hospital Complex. There were still dead bodies on the property. I mean, I've heard stories, man. They had a they had a morgue in the the, the captain's office of Asho right now. Used to be the morgue of that building. I mean, they had they when I was when I arrived in the Sea Org in 1995. I went on a mission over in Asho, and we were down in the captain's office. And you could look over ten feet over was the scale that they would roll the bodies onto to weigh them as part of that whole you know uh, process of getting rid of dead bodies. I mean, it was like wow, that wow, it was really weird. So clearly they needed a facelift, right? <laughs> and they started getting them. But that was not the ideal org program. That was just let's renovate these buildings. Let's make them look a little nicer. Let's get a better public image. And they started from the top down. So they started with Flag and then they started with some of the Sea Org bases. And then uh, Miscavige had this bright idea that the reason Scientology was not expanding successfully around the world and people weren't taking it as seriously as they should is because the orgs looked like shitholes. And, uh, and this, is, this is a technical term, right? We used to use this term often in Scientology because that was an apt description of our orgs. And if you go to places like Albuquerque uh, or Hawaii now, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about, right? They've been, they've been changing these places out, but you can still find plenty of examples of these shithole orgs. And Tom Cruise took some of his peeps, I guess, to one of these buildings, and it was just straight up embarrassing. As it, and it, is, it was embarrassing. I mean, Santa Barbara, when I, got, when I arrived in Santa Barbara, it had gotten this building, and it was, it was awful. It was an old hotel, and it, the walls were literally, the paint was chipping, and carpet was ran. I mean, it was stained, and it was gross. There were, there were cigarette burns in it because it used to be an old hotel. So, um, so the idea was let's upgrade the, our image, and let's make our orgs you know, look and feel like 
what an accurate reflection of Scientology really would be. Okay, this is how it was all presented to us, and we went, yes, please do this, because a lot of us were pretty embarrassed as Scientologists for the state of our quarters. You know, you can go down to any church, uh, any town, anywhere, and find really nice places, you know, nice lacquered wood maple pews and woodwork and stained glass windows and great big crosses. I mean, churches, generally speaking, you know, are, are, are pretty architecturally beautiful and um and scientology churches were were absolutely not that at all they looked like your grandma's basement you know on a bad day when it was uh, when there was a tornado outside so uh so this was why this was changed and miscavige took borrowed from uh hubbard's playbook uh, there is a policy letter hubbard wrote called the ideal org and in that policy letter, Hubbard lays out line by line, point by point, what an ideal org would consist of. And Miscavige went, there's the, there's the marketing message right there is we're going to call these ideal orgs. We're going to renovate them. They're going to be beautiful. They're going to have great furniture. They're going to be a very nice presentation. They're going to have great big open windows for the most part. People are going to, we're going to be transparent, literally, and it's going to be awesome. Well, this was all in 2000. This was all dreamed up in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s is when all of this was being planned out. Mitch, you know, has talked about this um, on, uh, with me on, on my channel here and on other channels, I'm sure. Um, and then Anonymous happened, right? And, uh, and Tom Cruise blowing up happened and the internet blew up over Scientology and suddenly that big master plan of transparency and openness and we're going to bring Scientology to the world, uh, you know, came crashing back in their face in the worst possible way, right? They were getting, you know, a fist to the face, not open hands of invitation from the world because Scientology's toxicity and destructiveness was exposed to everybody. And the whole Ideal Org program got thrown for a real loop on there, but Miscavige was already fully committed. He was already totally in. It had to keep rolling forward, and it had to happen because this was command intention. And so, um, so that is how. Um, yes, Xion, if you want me to see your questions, use uh, put them in the uh, ask a question box. Otherwise, I won't see them. That's the whole point of what we're doing with this today. Uh, thank you for uh, for clarifying that that point there. Because yeah, if you're putting your questions in the regular chat, I'm not seeing them. Okay, so getting back to this, um, how many staff should be manning the average ideal org? Miscavige himself in a briefing said that it would be 90 to 120 staff, depending on the size of the quarters and the location and the layout. Uh, different orgs have different layouts. Some have a test center that is remote from the org, the main org, like in Seattle. They have a, they have a test center downtown, and they have the main org kind of off the beaten path. Um, there are a few other places that have test centers, uh, but not all, not by a long shot. And so, um, so it depends a little bit on that, but that's about the staff size it's supposed to be. And most ideal orgs at this point, if I understand things right, are down to about 20 staff, 30 staff maybe. And we used to think of that as a pretty big org. Um, and the ideal orgs, I mean, none of them are really operating at complement that I know of. Maybe Ohio, maybe Columbus, uh, because that's the one that 
um, Rose came out of, and she talked about um, how there were a lot of Sea Org members there manning that place up, and that's how they had so many staff. But I don't know the current situation there, right? Um, okay, so... How much money do you think the average ideal brings in? Not a lot. More than your more than your podunk, you know, shithole orgs for sure. Um, because they are physically impressive. People walk into them and they are impressed. But um, and and that can bring in more money and stuff. But Scientology's you know name is mud right now, and and it will continue to be. So, in terms of money, I've heard that they are making as much as ten to thirty thousand dollars a week. So if they're selling auditing and delivering auditing, they can do that for quite a while before they start, you know, realizing that they've run out of all the people that they can, you know, uh, uh, existing Scientologists. Because what they're not doing is making new Scientologists in any significant number. Um, at least that's the, the, the apparency, right? We sort of project that based on what we see org to org to org and every single ideal org that we have had reports on for the last 15 years has been empty parking lots nobody's showing up i walked in there were just a few staff members around this is the consistent carbon copy report we get over and over and over again so um so this is not working as a strategy to to expand scientology but it really never was meant to do that as much as it was meant to help impress Tom Cruise and his friends and maybe accumulate some real, real estate um, income and uh, leverage. And, yeah, I mean, that's kind of obvious about the whole thing. But at the time that it was formulated, it was thought this was going to change everything. Well, it didn't because Scientology is still rotten to its core, right? If you ever saw, uh, there's an image that comes to mind I want to share with you guys. I, I, I'll, if you all have seen a movie, it's an old one uh, from the 80s, uh, so it goes way back. Uh, I feel so old even talking about the 80s that way, but that's how it is. It was a while ago. But there was a movie called Time Bandits. Uh, some of you will remember this, and if you haven't seen it, it is well worth your time to watch. It's a great movie. And at the end, there's this scene of concentrated evil these little black masses of steaming uh rock that are just evil and that's when i think of scientology <laughs> that's the image that comes to mind <laughs> so thought i'd share that with you guys okay um great question chris i i hope my answer uh satisfied there um okay um Oh, okay. Chris had another question here. Let's, let's throw this one up. What's the process of starting a mission, taking it to ideal org status? What happens after all the hype of an ideal org is over? Does the money go into the toilet and nobody show up anymore? Basically, yeah. Um, missions are not necessarily always built to become orgs. Uh, some do, some don't. Some were taken over by the Church of Scientology forcefully and turned into orgs. Only um, once... Once or twice, and can I recall somebody starting a mission and purposefully trying to turn it into an org? Most of the time, once a mission gets successful and going, it becomes a real cash cow for the mission holder. 
because they're they can take as much of the profit as they want as long as 10 percent go into scientology international for the service and trademark payments they can do whatever they want with the rest of the money uh, at least they used to be able to. I'm not sure how the contracts lay out now, but that's kind of how it is. Um, at least that's how it was when I was around. Um, after all the hype of the ideal org status, which is basically hype that lasts for a day or two, maybe a week, it's over. They're back to you know what they were doing before. Uh, nobody was interested in Scientology before. Nobody's really interested in it now. And the ideal orgs have one for one for one for one done an incredibly piss poor job of being able to either deal with that negative imaging or put enough positive imaging out that they can attract people in. Uh, again, Rose talked about this uh, with me on our podcast where we where she talked about selling books and trying to bring people in to Scientology from passing out promo and stuff around Columbus. And yeah, she did some work and some of that was useful in some fashion, but were they booming Columbus and is it now a thriving Scientology scene? Of course not, not at all, right? They work, so many of the internal policies of Scientology work against its own expansion that they really do get in their own way more often than even the negative toxic press gets in their way. It's really quite a masterclass in watching how to not run a group. Miscavige has been really brilliant at mismanaging this thing. Um, it, it, it's truly impressive from a from a stand, from that standpoint. So um, that's where I can. Oh, and then this does the money go into the toilet? Nobody show up anymore. Yeah, basically. Okay. Daniel Sander, where do you stand on term limits? Thinking of elected officials like Mitch McConnell, I stand firm for term limits. I think it is awful that we have uh, a geriatric, you know, old boys club called Washington, D.C., called our Congress. It is, it's embarrassing at this point. Um, I've been talking about this for years off and on. I mean, I, I, you know, when I, do, when I do mention it, it's always about term limits. Because it is ridiculous that Mitch McConnell has held political office for long, almost as long as I've been alive. That is not what the framers intended. That is not how our government should be run. It is a key, key, absolutely essential aspect of, our, of the rampant con, uh, corruption in our government that we do not have or uh, are unwilling to pass term limits for senators and uh, representatives, right? It becomes a cush job for them. They have to work their asses off to get there. Make no mistake, becoming a U.S. senator ain't an easy thing to do. Becoming a House of Representatives member is slightly easier, but not by much, you got to sell your soul, right? You got to do a lot of glad handling, a lot of fundraising, a lot of like, okay, you know, kind of stuff in order to get there. But once you're there, getting you out is hard, right? Incumbents always have the advantage. And uh, people make a career out of it and they find various avenues and ways and means of exploiting their position for personal aggrandizement and enrichment. And that's not what government service is about, and it never should be about that. 
Um, but there are way, way, way too many corporations and special interest groups who have way too much money to spend throwing it at senators and congressmen and Supreme Court justices, by the way, who everything I'm saying applies to them as well. Everything. The recent revelations of Clarence Thomas and Alito and these other guys are shocking and awful. The Supreme Court is a travesty of justice right now um, based solely on the corruption that is that is rampant and has been uh, apparently since as long as Clarence Thomas has been around. And I remember that asshole's confirmation hearings. And yeah, I'll, I'll call him that because he is. Um, and you talk about somebody who wasn't believed. I'll Google Anita Hill someday. Right. You'll see exactly why Me Too was so important. So this is uh, my subtle, not so strong, you know, take it or leave it approach to term limits. But you asked, so I will soapbox on that. Uh, Okay, let's carry on. Um, Ooh, look at all these questions coming in. Good. All right. Let me let me speed up here. I saw a YouTube guy who had been in prison for 10 years comment on Danny Masterson going to prison. He said the baddest guy would definitely coerce him to pay money to him each month. Your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. Um, Danny Masterson's a celebrity and a VIP, or at least he was. Uh, He's not really VIP anymore, but he is a celebrity. And I don't know exactly precisely how things work in California prisons as far as solitary or protected custody and that sort of thing or what access he has to that or whether he won't have any access to it at all. I, I really literally don't know. What I do know is that prisons are a dangerous environment and that um, they shouldn't be, uh, but they are. They very, very, very much are. And Danny Masterson's um, life and, uh, shall we say, purity uh, are at risk being there. And he's going to know that and he's going he's to get indoctrinated into that very, very quickly because it is its own culture and its own world. Prison is not like anything anybody imagines it to be like unless you've been there or have studied it. And um, I have not been in prison. I have been on an RPF, which is about as close as you're going to get to that in a Scientology sense. Um, And yet I was never, ever really in fear of things that could happen to you legitimately in a prison situation. So, um, so my experience with this only, I know it's limited. It only goes so far as far as the headspace goes, but it is a fact. Now, is it, um, is that mean he's going to have to, you know, pay money to people for protection and stuff like that? That could be one possible route he takes. There are others, there are gangs in prison. There's, um, you know, race divisions and stuff. There's a lot, it's a whole different culture. So um, the point being, I think, what we all want to know and be satisfied here with is that Masterson's not going to have a, a white-collar, you know, club-fed experience. And he's not. He's not. He, he's not. His life's over. Masterson's life is over as far as Masterson's professional career goes, as far as anybody ever believing anything he has to say about anything important about his status, about his money-making potential. That's all gone. Gone. Now, if it happens through some incredible series of, of legal maneuverings and chicanery that he were to appeal this and be found innocent or you know, it was all overturned and he comes out of this you know, years from now looking like it's not what it is, 
he might possibly be able to capitalize on that to some degree. But that's years in the future, and no one is thinking that that's what's going to happen. Um, these were brutal crimes, and the, uh, the accusations and stories were horrifying. Um, and people aren't going to forget that kind of thing because it gets dredged up every time the guy's name comes out. It's never, ever going to be forgotten. So, um, so that all being said, you know, the, pr- the prison experience being a brutal experience in the, for the most part, not a rehabilitation process for the most part in the United States, we can be sure that Masterson's um, experience there will not be pleasant or fun for even one minute. Seriously. So um, that's how I see it, at least. Okay, great question. Xion, were you love bombed in the Sea Org? Do you recognize when you're being love bombed nowadays, and do you still like it? <laughs> um, yes, I was love bombed in the Sea Org a couple times when they wanted me to do stuff. Right, I was pretty easy to love bomb because I, you know, kind of wear my heart in my sleeve. Y'all see where I'm at all the time. You know, I'm not, you know, a big person who hides things or is, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So people can read me pretty easy. And yes, I could have been and was easily manipulated as a Sea Org member to do things for the cause or do things because I thought somehow uh, in doing so, my ego would get a boost and I was told, you know, things that would, that would feed that. So, yeah, absolutely. And nowadays, it's love bombing to me now is kind of embarrassing because um, I certainly love people having a high opinion of my work and telling me so, right? And, I, and that's, that's always cool to be complimentary of the work I do and what I'm trying to do. I, of course I appreciate it. Who, who doesn't? I want more of that. Of course I do. Um, but I recognize the trap of it, too. And I won't just say anything or do anything for that. And that would be where you're crossing a line, I think. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting your ego fed or boosted. I really don't. I really believe that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's an emotional need we have. But when you start compromising your integrity, when you start saying things you don't mean, or pushing for causes or allyships that you don't really feel because you want that adulation and that support and that love bombing from people, that's where you are going off the rails. And, I, and I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. That's how I try to catch myself. That's, that's the best self metric I have is, is watching myself very closely to not fall for the trap of that. It's an invitation. It's, 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 it's a strong one. People can really fall in love with the concept of being loved by the masses. And it's uniformly um, not a good place to go. Louis C.K. put it best uh, on a show I saw just yesterday. Uh, you know, fame, glory, that achievement, that being on the, in the rarefied air on the mountaintop where everybody can see and hear you and partake in your messaging that's a that's supposed to be a vacation. That's supposed to be a trip you take. It's not where you live. <laughs> you don't stay there, right? You're gonna come down off the mountain at some point. And nobody really wants to, right, when they're there. But if you're not aware of the transitory 
effect of that, and this applies in a lesser degree to the love bombing, right? Because that's what's happening when you're up in the rarefied air is everybody loves you, right? Well, you know, until they don't. So uh, anyway, I may be going off topic a little bit there, but that's where my thoughts go with that. Um, okay, do you feel sad for the Scientologists who are still in, especially the Sea Org members? I feel bad when I see pictures of their smiling face. Oh, in the promo they send. Very much so. My heart bleeds for those people. Um, I, you know, like I, I, I've said a few times now that there are a, literally a handful, less than five, Sea Org members that I have a serious grudge about. Will not forgive them. Will not go back. Even if they came out, even if they started talking out, I'd be like, okay, whatever. You know, like, I, like these are people who enjoyed the sadism of the experience of being a Sea Org member. They enjoyed it. They, they really got off on hurting other people. So um, that is that many people versus thousands and thousands of Sea Org members and Scientologists, if we're, you know, encompassing the whole lot who don't deserve any part of what's happening to them. And they are being um, becoming weaponized empaths, and their, um, their good nature and good intent is being corrupted. And it's, I feel so bad for them. Yeah. Okay, did the classes help you with confidence and speaking skills that you use so well today? Glad you got out and spoke out. Thank you, Kelly. Um, I'll have to say yes, because in the experiential track of me going through my life, I took a communications class in Scientology, a pretty advanced one, when I was 15 years old. Did it help? Yeah, of course it did, right? Now, could I have gone to Toastmasters and done the same thing? Yeah. And later I did, actually. So so it's, it's like, yes, it helped me. In the course of my event uh, of my life, would I do it again? Hell no, absolutely not. No way would I ever do any of the Scientology again. And I think that's the tell as to whether it was really a positive or a negative influence in your life is, yeah, sure, it helped me. But I would never do it again. I'd go do something else entirely different. And get the same skill set without all the abuse raining down on me in the process. So, um, yeah, right. And in terms of confidence, Kelly, let me um, let me comment on this for a second because Scientology boosted me to a point of gross overconfidence uh, uh, based on the merits of my uh, actual abilities. I was, I, you guys would have hated me as a Scientologist. I was, you think I might be, some of y'all think I'm a little arrogant and cocky now, and I'm telling you, I'm really not, but I know that I used to come off that way even after I left Scientology because it took years. I wish it didn't. I wish there was an on-off switch for this stuff. Uh, it, it took me years to even realize, you know, kind of how arrogant I was being when I was first out. And how I had to really dial it down, <laughs> you know, like, whoa, boy, you know, and it, and it was just time and experience that taught me those lessons of, of necessity of like, oh, I didn't pull that off. Oh, that wasn't really that good. Oh, I'm really not all that. Oh, uh, you know, pinpricks in the, in the overinflated ego, right? Um, 
I see it as a cult problem, uh, as is how I see that. And I think by coming out of it and being honest with yourself, you know, you can dial some of that stuff down. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> Xion, what's that book I see on your desk? Oh, you mean this one here? This is my book, Scientology A to Z New, An Insider's Guide to What Scientology is Really All About. This is the book, and you can see it's a nice, big, thick book, nice, big writing there. This is uh, the book that I wrote um, in order to explain Scientology to the world. Okay, that's what this is, and that's why I started Put it up here because I don't promote it enough. If you are interested in what Scientology is really all about, uh, A Piece of Blue Sky by John A. Tack and this book right here will teach you everything you'll ever need to know about Scientology. After that, it's personal testimonials and history. But if you really want to understand it, this is your go-to book right here. And and John A. Tack's A Piece of Blue Sky. I will always happily promote John's uh, work here. Okay, thank you, Xion, for uh, asking me about that. Great question. Um, Frank D97E, are there still Scientology purists, an offshoot group that offers all the materials and auditing for free, or has COS wiped them out in courts, copyright, etc.? I don't know that there have ever been any groups that just offer Scientology materials and services for free. Anywhere. I mean, I, I don't know who those people are. There are independent Scientologists who have counseling centers and, and the great advanced, the advanced org of the Great Plains or something. I mean, they set up these independent shops and they sell their services. They, you had to pay money to go get audited by an independent Scientologist. That's not free. Um, so I don't know where these free places are, but... Um, maybe they exist. Maybe somebody's willing to give you free Scientology books and lectures. I don't know who, again, I've never heard of that. That's very interesting. Um, but there are very, very, very much, Frank, still Scientology purists is how they would definitely think of themselves. Um, oh my God, it's already noon. Wow. Okay, guys. Um, <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're gonna see if I can rip through these last few and move on our line here. Um, thank you for that question, Frank. And Laura asks, um, the Canadian HQ for Scientology has been in Gulf, Ontario since 2021, where they purchased and re renovated an Alder office building. Do you know much about this location? Is it an ideal org? Ontario. Um, well, let's check real fast. Just going to look up Ontario Church of Scientology. Church of Scientology of Toronto. Canada does not look like it's an ideal org. No, because Toronto comes up on a Google search, but Ontario does not. Unless I'm, unless I'm conflating or confusing these two things. There's Ottawa. There's Toronto. There's Cambridge. There's Detroit. Um, I am so bad at on at Canadian. Okay, so there's Ontario as a state of Canada. So maybe this is in reference to Toronto org, and Toronto is an ideal org. 
Yeah, okay, Toronto, Ontario. That is an ideal org. Yeah, they have renovated that place. So, yeah, that's... Uh, oh, yeah, where they purchased and renovated an older office building. Yeah, kind of... Oh, duh, you're, the answer was right there. Um, I don't... I, obviously, I'm a complete boob when it comes to Canada and, and geography here, as I'm dis putting on full display here. Um, but, yeah, Toronto is an ideal org. Thanks for, thanks for asking there. <laughs> Um, okay, Joe DiCepo, have you ever played a video game, Deuce Ex Machina, first one in the series, or Deuce Ex? Uh, it pokes fun at a lot of conspiracy theories by imagining a world where a whole load of them are true. I have not played that game. I have heard of it, but I've not, not played it. Um, did you find the true, the love bombing gave you trust issues? I will say yes to the degree that um, I am suspicious of people who come at me with who are very, very complimentary. Um, not automatically. It's not like if you say a nice word about me, I'm going to be like, what? But if it comes across a little bit too much, I definitely go, okay, Chris, you know, let's not... Um, Let's not take all this in uh, unskeptically, right? Who is who is doing this to me and why are they doing it uh, is usually, you know, and if there's some big ask after all of the compliments, right, then I know somebody's trying to, you know, mess with me. So I, only to that degree, I, I think, you know, uh, is what I can say that. Okay, so this was great. Let's go ahead and now I get to... Um, and the Q&A, yes. This will remove all the questions in the question list. Okay, done deal. And there we go. Back to the regular comment stream here. Yeah, Toronto is in Ontario. I, I'm an idiot. I get it. <laughs> I do. I do. I totally, totally own it. Um, okay, guys. Thank you very much for coming around and watching me blabber on here about all of this stuff. Yes, consultations, guys. Um, thank you, Joe, for reminding me. I have um, merch available for sale, by the way, link below at my Spreadshirt store. And I've just recently um, gotten into making some new designs that will be going up soon. And I do consultation, okay? If you guys need help, if you are somebody who has been in a coercive situation or you know somebody or have friends or family who are in a cult or coercive situation and you don't know what to do, you don't know what to say, you don't know how to deal with it, or you want help post-cult life, some direction, some guidance, some, some education, I can be there for you and I can do those things, okay? And uh, so far, uh, you know, everybody I've worked with it seems very happy with the work that we did. Um, I do charge for that, but um, pretty cheap, actually, all things considered for my time. And that's available if you contact me via my website. There is a contact form there and we can get in touch or you can just write to me at askchrisshelton at gmail.com and I'll be happy to talk with you. All right. So that all being said, guys, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Um, I will see you guys soon. Bye-bye.